Good morning, beloved church. From now on, when, every, when someone reads the passage from the book of Esther, they need a round of applause. So, Carrie, well done. Well done. I'm just glad I didn't have to pronounce those names. And so, we are in this brand new series in the book of Esther. And, and before we dive in, I, I want to celebrate something. Um, we have a picture of a baptism. So, Ryan, can you put that picture up on the screen? Uh, last Sunday after church, some of us braved the cool, uh, winds, uh, right on the coast there. And we went into the water and there's River, who's Ruth's daughter. My children also got baptized. Camden, Adeline, and Lily did. Uh, and then also, uh, Alexandra, uh, um, Angelique, I'm sorry. And they, these children put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ and they said, We want to follow Christ. We want to proclaim his name to our church that we are Christians and we want to live our lives wholeheartedly for him. So that's something we're celebrating. Um, And and it worked out really good. If you see the picture, there's a wave coming from the back. And so when you when you put them under, it's perfect timing. You just have to plan it right. The wave comes and you dunk them. You don't even really have to bend down very much. They just go right under. And so uh, that was fun. Um, if, if you uh, would like to get baptized and you've put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus, uh, let us know because we celebrate what God has done. And it's important to identify with what Jesus Christ has done for you and tell God's covenant people, his children, that you are a child of God and that you desire to walk in him. We're, we're here to help one another. And to hold each other to these wonderful truths. Here we have the ancient truths of Esther. This book was written about 500 years before Christ. About 500 years after King David. Right there in the middle of the king who was the greatest king of all time. In human terms, King David, that the Jews would celebrate. And then the Messiah King who would come who really was the greatest king of all time. And Esther is this kind of muddy middle of history where we wonder, where is God exactly? Have you ever been there in your life? You've wondered where God is. God, are you really at work here? God, I can't see you. I can't see what you're doing. This does not look to be of your hand Help me see it, God. Help me live in this. Well, in the book of Esther, we see a God who doesn't work in the limelight, but in the shadows. And and isn't that how much of life is? It's not about this visible work of God, but looking for God in the invisible that causes us to depend on him, to trust in him. And to walk in him. And for Esther, many believe that she was a teenager when she entered in the king's court. Between the age of 13 and 17. And was faced with a reality that no one wants their daughter, their niece, their cousin, a girl in their family or in their church to go through. To be put into the beauty contest of the most powerful king in all the world when he just disposed of his previous wife because she didn't obey his commands? How is God at work in this story? 
How's God at work in the world around us when it looks like Satan has got the upper hand? There's a woman named Corrie Tin Boom. She was a Holocaust survivor. Her family had risked their lives to save hundreds of Jews from the Nazis taking them into concentration camp. And because of their faithfulness in saving these Jews, someone betrayed them and her and her family went into a concentration camp. Her loved ones she saw killed. She She quoted this poem very regularly. It's called The Tapestry. She says, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hands as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. In the pattern he has planned. Can we live in the pattern that God has planned and acknowledge that he is the artist? He is the one that's weaving it all together. He is the one that sees the way the strands are moving together. He is the one that's painting on a canvas that's as big as a universe. He's the one that knows every single element and and aspect of your life, every circumstance that you're going through. What you see as good, bad, or ugly, God sees as something incredibly divine because he sees it in light of the overarching picture of what he is doing. I think as we study the book of Esther, it's important that we understand three things. And I want to give you these three, three things, and I'm going to give them to you regularly so we remind ourselves of these three things in light of God's unseen sovereignty. That number one, that God works beyond what we can see. God works beyond what we can see. How many of you have been to the ocean? Anybody? Anybody been to the ocean? From the beach, you look at the ocean, and it just keeps going, doesn't it? It's vast, it's big, it's broad. Back before they had maps and geographical locations and all that kind of stuff, they would think that that was the Niagara Falls just completely going into the oblivion. That if you went that far, you would just fall off the face of the earth because they couldn't see what we can see now. We know that the scope of that ocean is big and broad, but it's not unending. But when we... When we look at our lives and the things that God is doing, and and we try to, to piece together what we can in our finite minds, it's important that you know that there's some things that you're not going to know and you have to trust God for, because God is at work beyond what you can see. And it's for your good. The second thing that's important is that When it appears that God is absent, he is not. When it appears that God is absent, he is not. The book of Esther is a very strange book. Very strange book. Because the the word God, the name God is not mentioned even once. 
If you read the book, you, you see very little about spirituality. There are some hints in it. There are some reflections in it, but none of it's pronounced. And we wonder, why is this book in the Bible? We don't know who the author is. We know that he is writing a narrative story of history that happened, and he's writing it in story form, but he also leaves some questions as to moral ambiguity. There, there's no real directives of what was right or wrong. He, he leaves the audience in this place of tension in order, to, in order to, to, to move us into the story, but to see God in the unseen, because he's here. In fact, many people wonder, why is not the name of God written in the book? And I would simply say it's because God didn't want his name written in that book. It was God's choice. He chose to be implicit instead of explicit, to be working underneath in this subversive way to show that he is king and that he's in control of all things over all times and all places. And the third thing is, is that where God promises, he provides. Where God promises, he provides. One of the important things about knowing Scripture is they're filled with promises. Filled with promises. God's promises to his people written over and over and over again. And as you read those promises to his people, you see that God fulfills his promises. Because God is a God of providence providence, that God provides. His unseen hand is guiding human history. And let me tell you something, church, his unseen hand is the hand that so gently and carefully and lovingly guides your life today. The God that is unseen in Esther is the God who's made visible to us today through God's Son, Jesus Christ. God is visible. And you see, confirm the three things that I just mentioned on the cross. God's at work beyond what you could see. That when God seems absent, He's there. And that where God promises, He provides. Because before the foundations of the world, God fulfilled His promise with an explanation point. On that cross where Jesus died, the Lamb of God, He is the one who takes away the sins of the world. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I I don't know where you're at in life today and some of the difficulties that you may face. I I don't know if your life is filled with joy. And if it is, that's a good thing. Don't feel bad about that. We need to be able to sing the song, When peace like a river attendeth my way. 
That's a good thing when, when you've got vacation planned in a couple weeks and you're counting down and everybody's excited about it. And you went to the doctor and you've got a clean bill of health and it feels like everything's good in the family and there's general unity. And, and the church, God is working in, in a powerful way. And, and those are good times, times that are worth celebrating. But you also have to know that when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot He has caused me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I don't don't think Esther had that song, but she did have the 23rd Psalm that says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. She was schooled in the way of, of the Jewish faith to find the Messiah, to find God at work in the difficulties All throughout history, the Jews have been a people that have sought, that the world has sought to bring an annihilation to. Do you know why? Because of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve, the son of David. The prophecy continues and you see that Satan wants to crush the work of the Messiah But the promise of God that's steadfastly through and through is that the heel of the Messiah will be bruised, but it won't be without the crushing of the head of the snake, the serpent. And so we read about certain annihilation for the Jews here, but there's this great reversal that happens where the Jews here aren't annihilated, but actually the, the Jews here are able to take up arms against their enemies and to kill off those who seek their destruction for their survival. And from the line of David, the, 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 the seed is preserved, the offspring is preserved as another woman, another teenager, Mary, who carried the Messiah in her womb would give birth to the Christ. And you see God's purposes like a needle and thread, this, this weaving tapestry that God does through the darkness. He's shining his light And in the unseen realities of the difficulties of our lives, God is making it a way for his light to break through that darkness. Okay, so let's begin our study in the book. The first thing you see, I'm not going to read all this over again. Uh, Carrie did a great job with that. Um, But the first thing you see is this man, Ahasuerus. Uh, Ahasuerus was the king of Persia. He was the most powerful man in the known world. You might know his name by the name Xerxes. Ever heard of Xerxes? Maybe in your world history classes? Xerxes was one of the most powerful kings this world had ever seen. His father was Darius. Darius was a powerful king. He inherited a kingdom at the early 30s. That's a scary thing, isn't it? Give a 30-year-old a kingdom. Xerxes had the known world at his fingertips in this time. He ruled over 127 provinces. It was a massive scope of land that he ruled over and a massive concentration of people, people of all languages and dialects and tongues. And what would happen in these days of the king conquering is they would seek to conquer a land and assimilate the people into their kingdom. And where they assimilated, they were welcome because they were taxpayers and they were giving honor and glory to God. Not the God, but to the little G God. Xerxes was a little G God 
in the mind of his kingdom. You had to treat him that way if you were going to live under his rule and his authority, as you will see. But if you did, you would be rewarded. And if you would give him your, your wealth and, your, and, and, and whatever influence that you had, you would be rewarded richly. And that's what we see happening here is there's this lavish party that's going on where Xerxes is declaring his glory above all else. And has anybody ever been to a, a long party, like couple-day party? Maybe you went to a wedding and it lasted for a couple days. I, I remember I went to Brazil for some friends of mine, my wedding, and we were there for a week, and it was a week-long party. It was exhausting. It was fun. Those Brazilians, they know how to party. But Xerxes, man, Xerxes' party went on for 180 days. He wanted to send a message. I'm a king who can throw a 180-day party. And that means that the land is at peace, that we don't have to worry about anything, that we could let our guard down, that the royal wine could flow in abundance. And at the end of this, this 180-day, six-month feast and party, there was another feast within it to cap it off. And this feast was the one that we see described here. The feast was filled with everything beautiful in its time. White cotton curtains, linens that were of utmost wealth. I mean, the, the, the floor that you would walk on was something that you wouldn't even want to walk on because it was so valuable. It was more than your net worth. And then also you had wine glasses that were of gold and no two were alike. You, 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 there was not a set of these that you could buy at Hobby Lobby. No, it was all different wine glasses, all made of gold, all to declare the king's wealth and riches and glory. You had couches that were weaved with gold and silver, real gold and real silver. You, you didn't even want to sit down in this place. There was marble pillars that were, that the, these marble pillars that exuded the, the greatness of the kingdom in the garden and the greatness of the king. This was a party that the who's who's wanted to be at. It was for all the noblemen, all the generals, all his princes, all the people of the province who had anything to offer the king and his army was there. The king wanted to go to battle. There's these, there's these, uh, Salamis was one of the famous battles of Xerxes. There's other famous battles of Xerxes, many of which took place around this time period. In fact, Xerxes was beaten by the Greeks not once, but twice. But he kept, he kept on going. He was a man with this insatiable desire to conquer. And what he wanted to do with this party was, verse 4, showing the riches of his glory and the splendor of his pomp and his greatness. Xerxes had an inscription at the Persepolis, which was one of his greatest achievements in building his father started it. Xerxes completed it. This inscription that is read, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, 
the king of all countries which speak, which speak all kinds of languages, the king in this great earth far and wide, son of King Darius, the Archimenean, a Persian, son of a Persian, an Aryan of Aryan descent. The king is declaring his lordship. He's saying he's worthy of worship, that he's of the lineage of a royal line and that you are to bow down and worship him. And if you do, he will bring you sure and steadfast victory. That's what the king of Persia wanted to display with this party. Drinks were served abundantly. There was one rule. No compulsion. No compulsion. Drink as much as you like. If you want more, just keep drinking more. The king says it's good. God says it's okay. It's okay. His harem was filled with women. And this was a party that they left nothing of their desires to be undone. Because if you were friends with the king, then all your lavish dreams, desires, and lusts could go uninhibited and unrestrained. And this is the kingdom that the king sought to rule. This is the kingdom that the king sought to lead. Xerxes was a king who wanted envy over honor. Isn't that the way much of the world thinks? Men seek not to be esteemed, but to be envied. It's a dangerous thing for anyone in this world. We, we, we live in a world where we seek to covet. I wish I had what they had. I, I, I'm praying that we raise up men in our church who seek honor over envy. That we would, we would not want to be those who just want everybody to be like us because we exude some kind of greatness. But because we honor God, we would be honored by others. And we would raise up men who imitate the honor that we so give to God. I want to juxtapose Xerxes and Christ. You have a king who's filled with all the wealth of the world, who comes as the Messiah. You have God who leaves his throne. He steps down from his throne. He leaves heaven to become a man and dwell among us. Mark 10, 43 through 45, Jesus gives these words to his disciples. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even the King in all his glory, even the one who rules over the heavens, who made the vast sea, even he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Xerxes is an example of man's heart when we have not been changed by God. There's a part of me that wants to be like Xerxes. Can can I be honest in you in saying that? That a six-month party that I don't have to worry about anything. The, the food and drink is good and it just keeps coming. There's part of me that thinks, man, that's a good life. Who wouldn't want that kind of life? 
But Jesus comes and he shows us a different way. And he says, really, if you seek that life, you're just going to be unhappy. Because Xerxes' desire was insatiable. You have a king who's trying to display his wealth, his glory, and honor over 127 provinces, and then the king is left without his clothes. He is shown as the emperor who's naked. Why? Because he cannot even command his own wife. She's having a party over in the kingdom. She's bringing in all the gals. She's doing what she's supposed to do. Man, this woman is probably struggling in life altogether because this man who's the most powerful ruler in all the world has her crushed under his thumb. And she has about had it. I can't take any more of this man. And then the seven eunuchs, I'll call them the seven thugs, they come crashing through the door and she looks at them and her eyes start rolling. Not again. Not again. He, he wants me to what? To, to wear what? Seriously? I'm not doing it. The, you can read between the lines in the passage here. She was a beautiful woman. Known as the most beautiful woman in all the land. What better way would King Xerxes gain envy over all of those but to show off his wife? And she was probably wearing little to nothing as far as what he wanted her to wear. Not to exalt her. Not to bring her up as a woman of dignity and honor. But to shame her and exalt himself. That was King Xerxes. And she defied him. She said, I'm not going to do it. It's interesting here, watching God's providence at work in this whole story, because there's the story, and then there's the hand that's guiding everything underneath and is using all things for his glory. Now, the problem was, is that the king who ruled the known world at that time could not command his wife. What's the king to do? Well, let's get the assembly together. Let's get all the guys together and, 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 and let's make a decree against her. Shows how power hungry this man was and how so little he had of actual control because a man who could not woo his wife's heart is a man who is not worthy to follow. And this was King Xerxes' struggle, is he needed to bring a decree against his wife in order to show his power over the people. And the decree was made. There's a problem here. The problem wasn't only that Queen Vashti refused the king, but the problem is, is what are, what's my wife at home going to think about this when she hears about it? What are the women all around the land going to do? How are they going to treat their husbands? Are they going to think that they can be disobedient to their husbands? And then what should we do, king? What should we do? This is not just, this is not just a travesty against you, but all of Persia. And so the king makes a decree based upon what Mamukin says. King, we need to do something about this. Let's make a decree that you can divorce your wife because she disobeyed you. And that decree stands not only for you, but all the lords of the, house, of the houses in the land. That if their wives cross their husbands, 
then they are to be disposed of. That's a very dangerous thing in that time because for a woman in that time period, their worth wasn't found in themselves. This was a horrible time period in the way of women's rights. There were no rights. Women weren't treated as a partner in marriage. Women were treated as property. The Queen Vashti and, and King Xerxes, they didn't have a marriage. It was, it was a, a situation where Xerxes was a slave owner over Vashti. And Vashti disobeyed him, and so Vashti was left out on the streets out for cold. It wasn't like she can go home to mom and dad. No, chances are everyone in her former household was punished. Potentially, even her kids, whatever children they had, were disowned by the king. And the king said, I'm going to start over. I want somebody better. Think about what Esther is moving into. It's not an easy thing. And so the problem is that the most powerful man in the world was looked at as a fool. And the solution was is that the one who made the king look, look like a fool was the one who would lose her livelihood. And anyone in the land, it would be said, they would lose their livelihood it's themselves. I, I, want, I want us to, to see again the, the reality of what I just said earlier, where God promises he provides. So how does God work in a situation like this? Because if you know the story, there's a beauty contest that's given. The next chapter we see that, that because this king has an emptiness in his heart, that we should find a woman better for the king. And so there is a decree that says, again, to go out into the land and find all the young and beautiful virgins and bring them into the king's harem and give them a year to beautify themselves. Give them a year to make themselves beautiful for the king. Some believe that this was like the bachelor contest, by the way. Like if anybody watched The Bachelor, that, that this, all these women were just ready to go in there. I, I don't think it was that way. I think it was the generals and the people were sweeping through the lands. And I think these, women, these girls were ripped from their homes. And they were brought into the harem and, and, and it was crushing these families. Esther was, she was, a, she was an outcast. She was a Jew. She hid her identity because if her identity was made known, she knew she could lose her life. And she was just a young girl. Her cousin Mordecai was her adopted dad. And she was brought into this beauty contest. And here you see that the, this, this young girl spends a night with the king before she's married. It's where the moral ambiguity comes in. It doesn't celebrate those things, but it gives us the reality of what was taking place in that time. I, I think for us, we've wondered how God could redeem some of the moral ambiguity of our lives, haven't we? The things that we've done that have dishonored him. Because n- none of us have a clean record. Neither does Esther here. I don't know the situations or the circumstances. The book here does not pass judgment upon her, nor do I, only as the book passes judgment upon me. 
Because I myself have walked in a way contrary to the Scriptures. But Esther here, we see a steadfast pursuit of the promises of God. Well, how do you know, Ryan, she's following the promises of God? The book doesn't even tell us. This Bible doesn't even say. But when you read between the lines, you see that a little bit later that Esther asked that they would fast, that they would have a fat time of fasting, that the Jews who are about to be annihilated would fast so that she can go before the king and ask of him to stop, to thwart this annihilation. There's an evil villain named Haman who wants to be worshipped at the city gates. He's the chief of staff of the king. And Mordecai is at, the, is at the gates. And as Haman walks by, he says to Mordecai, why don't you bow down before me? And Mordecai refuses to. And not only does Haman want to kill Mordecai, but all the Jewish people. He wants to annihilate them all. And so he cons the king in to an annihilation plan that, that is to kill all the Jews of that time. And Esther is a Jew in the king's court. And Mordecai says to Esther, who knows, for such a time as this is why you are here. I don't know how I would have responded. First of all, I'm not that pretty, so I probably wouldn't have been in the king's court. <laughs> but I don't know how I would have responded if I were in a situation like that for Esther. But I do know that the, un, the guiding principle behind it all is that she depended upon God's promise to deliver her and her people because God's promise is sure. In Egypt, the Israelites were in slavery and bondage. And Pharaoh sought to hold them under his thumb. But God delivered them. When Jesus was born, King Herod sought to have every newborn infant killed because he wanted the seed of the woman to die. He wanted no ruler to take his place. Because Satan and his demons would be at work behind the principalities and rulers of our day and time. Like Haman, like Herod. But the thing that we see steadfast from the beginning of the Bible to the end of it. Is that God's promises prevail. God's promises prevail. God's promises prevail. And at the end of the day, his people his people are receiving his blessing and his favor. They're going to be okay. Do you know that God does not promise that we are going to have all good times? He doesn't promise that our life is going to be so easy all the time. There's going to be joy mixed with sorrow. But one of the things that God does say is in the midst of our most hard times in life is that he is going to be there. He's going to be with us. And that when God is with us, he says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And the other thing that God promises to do is that he will make foolish the wisdom of the world. Corinthians 1.27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That God would use this young girl, Esther, who would marry Xerxes to save the Jewish people. 
That it was from this young girl who was scattered as an orphan in the land that God would give courage to stand before the king and plead on behalf of her people. And that it was through the wisdom of this young girl that God allowed the Jews to snuff out their enemies. There were those who wanted to continue to kill the Jews in her time, but she, in her wisdom, sought to it while she had favor with the king to see that those who desired to eradicate the Jews were killed themselves. And the end of the day, there is a stake that was put in the middle of the town, in the middle of Susa, where Mordecai was supposed to be killed on it. The gallows where Mordecai was supposed to be hanged. The great reversal happens where on that stake where Mordecai should have died, Haman himself was killed. And all of the enemies of the Jews were placed under God's judgment. And that's the story that we see on the cross. Rome put a cross there for Christ. Christ went on that cross. But you know what he did? He made a spectacle of death. Rome wanted that cross to be a spectacle of why you should never be their enemy. Jesus took the cross and he made it the symbol of Christianity to say that the cross has power because God has made it a tool for his victory. That Rome was crucified on that day, not Jesus. And that all victory belongs to him. John three sixteen and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's plan includes you seeing God's love and you never growing weary or cold from that love, but always being warmed by the fires of that love. Let let me give you an example in my own life. When Carrie and I were married, we sought to have children right away. I mean, why not? And so uh, we we immediately thought, we've we've got things that are ready for it. We had a home. Uh, we had provision for them, and, and so we, we sought to have children as fast as we can. But, but as God would have it, he delayed it. We found out that Carrie had what was called unexplainable infertility. We wondered, why is God at work? We watched those around us having children. We watched those who we thought shouldn't have children having children. We watched people who... We watched, we watched it all take place. I remember people would ask me, when are you going to have children? And I said, well, we're trying. And they said, try harder. Keep going. It's fun. I'm like, that only, that's joke works one time, by the way. Um, and, and then God gave us our children. They spent 21 days in the NICU. And Camden and Adeline, Adeline was born three pounds, eight ounces. Camden was born four pounds, two ounces. They needed help even breathing. But man, we were so happy. We were so overjoyed. And they had the 21 days in the NICU. They had all, all their needs met in that time period. I mean, the, the nurses were doing a great job. It was an easy job for us as parents, the first 21 days. It was great. 
And then I remember pulling into the, the little turn roundabout over at Winnie Palmer and, and picking up Carrie and the kids. And then Carrie got in the car and we fastened the kids into the back seat. And I remember taking a deep breath and it was like, oh crap. <laughs> They're ours now. They're ours now. Do you know God's promise for us with our children didn't stop when he gave them to us? But God's promise for our children continues today. Do you know that I have a responsibility for those children that freaks me out all the time as a dad? I mean, I I think it's hard to keep a dog alive, let alone kids. But yet, God sustains them. And he gives me the strength where I need it most. Here's what I want to ask you as it relates to this story. There are things that God wants to do in your life for his glory. That if you would trust him, and that you would obey him, and that you would walk in him, he would see you through, just like he's seeing Carrie and I through as we raise our children. Just like many of you he's seeing through in your lives right now. But the question I have for you is, will you see your story in the story of God like Esther? Esther followed God. Will you follow God? Who knows what God's called you to? I don't know if God's called you to be a missionary. I don't know if God's called you to, I don't, I don't know if God's called you to a new job or a new career. Chances are it's a very ordinary thing. Chances are it's right in line with where you're at now. But the thing is, asking the question, does God have your heart? Because raising my children means that God has to have my heart in that. So that they would see my love for the Lord and they would be raised up in it. That pastoring a church means that you, church, have to see my heart for the Lord, that I'm willing to follow him, that I'm willing to go to the hard places, that I'm willing to make the hard decisions, that I'm willing to do the hard things. And through that, seeing what it's like to follow after God. I'm not going to do it perfectly. Esther didn't do it perfectly. But we have one who went before us that did. And we have Christ who went before us that gives us the promise that God has forgiven you and he has taken away your judgment of sin forever. So now you can live in the freedom of God's grace to be the person that God has called you to be, to live in that reality. You don't have to earn anything from God. God freely gives it. But you do have to be a faithful follower. Is your story caught up in the story of God? And today is a day where when you take communion, today is a day when you pray, when you sing this song, it goes well beyond the words on the screen and it moves into our heart and we say, I'll follow, I'll follow you. It's not King Xerxes I worship, it's King Jesus. And King Jesus who gave his life for me. Would you stand as we sing And we give praise to God. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the story of Scripture that illuminates the truth of your sovereignty in our lives. That illuminates, God, a heart to follow after you. 
God, I pray that you would give us grace and strength, that you would empower us. God, that you would have our hearts today. God, pierce us where we need it. You know where it is we need it. We follow you and wholeheartedly worship you here. In Jesus' name, church says, amen.